Part Two, Chapter Five, Section Two of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, by Abner Doubleday, Part Two, Chapter Five, Section Two, Battle of Gettysburg, the Second Day. While the peach orchard was assailed. Several combats took place in the vicinity, which had a general relation to the defense of Sickles' line. A little stream runs through a ravine parallel to the crossroad, and about five hundred yards south of it, and then turns abruptly to the south at the corner of a wheat-field, passing through a rocky, wooded country, to empty in Plum Run. De Trobriand held the north bank of this stream with a very insufficient force, a front of two regiments and his contest with Sem's brigade in front, and Kershaw's brigade, which was trying to penetrate into the peach orchard, on his right, was at very close range and very destructive. At the same time as Ward's left was turned and driven back, the enemy came in on the left and rear of de Trobriand, and occupied the wheat-field. Barnes' division of the Fifth Corps, composed of Schweitzer's and Tilton's brigades, soon came to his assistance. The former, by wheeling to the left and retaining several lines, kept up the fight successfully against the enemy who came up the ravine, but the latter was flanked and obliged to give way. De Trobriand's two regiments in front had a most determined fight, and would not yield the ground. When relieved by Zook's force, they fell back across the wheat-field. There Burney used them as the basis of a new line, brought up two fresh regiments, charged through the field, and drove the enemy back to the stone fence which bounded it. Caldwell's division of Hancock's corps now came on, to renew the contest. Caldwell formed his men with the brigades of Cross and Kelly in front, and those of Zook and Brook in rear. In the advance Colonel Cross was killed, and the front line being unfiladed in both directions, was soon so cut up that the rear line came forward in its place. Zook was killed, Brooke made a splendid charge, turning Kershaw's right and driving Sam's back through the supporting batteries. Schweitzer's brigade then came up a second time to aid Brooke, but it was useless, for there was still another line of batteries beyond, and as the peach orchard by this time was in possession of the enemy, Brooke's advanced position was really a disadvantage, for both his flanks were turned. Sam's brigade, together with parts of Benning's and Anderson's brigades, rallied behind a stone wall, again came forward, and succeeded in retaking the knoll and the batteries they had lost. Caldwell, under cover of our artillery, extricated his division with heavy loss, for both Zook's and Kelly's brigades were completely surrounded. Then Ayres, who had been at the turning-point of so many battles, went in with his fine division of regulars, commanded by Day and Burbank officers of courage and long experience in warfare. He struck the enemy in flank who were pursuing Caldwell, and who would have renewed the attack on Little Round Top, doubled them up, and drove them back to the position Caldwell had left. But his line, from the nature of things, was untenable, for a whole brigade with ample supports had formed on his right rear, so that nothing remained but to face about and fight his way home again. 
This was accomplished with a tremendous loss of fifty per cent of his command in killed and wounded. His return was aided by the artillery on Little Round Top, and by the advance of part of the Sixth Corps. When the troops were all gone, Winslow's battery still held the field for a time, and withdrew by peace. A note here. General Ayres, whose service in the war commenced with the first bull run, and ended at Appomattox, may almost be called an impersonation of the Army of the Potomac, as he took part in nearly all its battles and minor engagements. End of the note. The enemy, Wofford's, Kershaw's, and Anderson's brigades, now swarmed in front of our main line, between the Wheatfield and Little Round Top. General S. Wiley Crawford, who commanded a division composed of two brigades of the Pennsylvania Reserve Corps, was ordered to drive them farther back. This organization, which at one time I had the honor to command, were veterans of the peninsula, and were among the most dauntless men in the army. Crawford called upon them to defend the soil of their native state, and headed a charge made by McCandless's brigade, with the colors of one of the regiments in his hand. The men went forward with an impetus nothing could withstand. The enemy took shelter behind a stone fence on the hither side of the wheat-field, but McCandless stormed the position, drove them beyond the field, and then, as it was getting dark, both sides rested on their arms. The other brigade of Crawford's division, that of Fisher, had previously been sent to reinforce Vincent in his desperate struggle on the slope of Little Round Top. The enemy retired before it, so that it was not engaged, and it then took possession of the main Round Top on the left of Little Round Top, and fortified it. As Crawford charged, two brigades of Sedgwick's corps, those of Nevin and Eustace, formed under Wheaton on the right, and below Little Round Top. The sight of the firm front presented by these fresh troops thoroughly discouraged Longstreet, who went forward to reconnoitre, and he gave up all attempts at making any farther advance. The enemy at night took post at the western base of the ridge, and held a fortified line as far south as the Devil's Den, in which rocky cavern they took shelter. It remains now to describe the effect of the loss of the peach orchard and the wounding of Sickles and Graham, which took place soon after, upon the fate of Humphrey's division, posted on the right along the Emmitsburg Road. When Sickles lost his leg, Burney assumed command of the corps, and ordered Humphreys to move his left wing back to form a new oblique line to the ridge, in connection with Burney's division. Humphreys, up to the loss of the peach orchard, had not been actively engaged, as the enemy had merely demonstrated along his front, but now he was obliged, while executing the difficult manoeuvre of a change of front to rear, to contend with Barksdale's brigade of McLaw's division on his left at the Peach Orchard, and enfilading batteries there also, while his entire front was called upon to repel a most determined assault from Anderson's division, which hitherto had not been engaged, and which now pressed with great force on his right, which still clung to the road. Four regiments were thrown in by Hancock to support that part of the line, but the attack was so sudden and violent that they only had time to fire a few volleys before Humphreys received orders to give up his advanced position and fall back to the ridge itself. There he turned at bay. Hancock, 
who had been placed in command of the first, second, and third corps, was indefatigable in his vigilance and personal supervision, patching the line wherever the enemy was likely to break through. His activity and foresight probably preserved the ridge from capture. Toward the last, Meade brought forward Lockwood's Maryland Brigade from the right, and sent them in to cover Sickles' retreat. Humphreys was followed up by the brigades of Wilcox, Perry, and Wright, about the best fighting material in the rebel army. Perry was driven back by the fire of our main line, and as his brigade was between the other two, his retreat left each of them in a measure unsupported on the flanks. Posey's and Mahone's brigades were to advance as soon as the others became actively engaged, but failed to do so, and therefore Pender, who was to follow after them, did not move forward. Hence the great effort of Wilcox and Wright, which would have been ruinous to us if followed up, was fruitless of results. Both were repulsed for lack of support, but Wright actually reached the crest with his Georgians, and turned a gun, whose cannoneers had been shot, upon Webb's brigade of the Second Corps. Webb gave him two staggering volleys from behind a fence, and went forward with his two regiments. He charged, regained the lost piece, and turned it upon them. Wright, finding himself entirely isolated in this advanced position, went back again to the main line, and Wilcox did the same. On this occasion Wright did what Lee failed to accomplish the next day at such a heavy expense of life, for he pierced our centre, and held it for a short time, and had the movement been properly supported and energetically followed up, it might have been fatal to our army and would most certainly have resulted in a disastrous retreat. It was but another illustration of the difficulty of successfully converging columns against a central force. Lee's division seemed never to strike at the hour appointed. Each came forward separately, and was beaten for lack of support. Wright attained the crest, and Wilcox was almost on a line with him. The latter was closely followed up and nearly surrounded, the troops rushed in on him from all sides. He lost very heavily in extricating himself from his advanced position. Wilcox claims to have captured temporarily twenty guns, and Wright eight. As they approached the ridge a Union battery limbered up and galloped off. The last gun was delayed, and the cannoneer, with a long line of muskets pointing at him within a few feet, deliberately drove off the field. The Georgians manifested their admiration for his bravery by crying out, "'Don't shoot!' and not a musket was fired at him. I regret that I have not been able to ascertain the man's name. A note here. As it is well to verify these incidents, I desire to state that this is a reminiscence of Dr. J. Roby Wood, of New York, a Georgian, a relative of Wendell Phillips, who was in the charge with Wright. Wood fell struck by six bullets, but recovered. In the morning General Tidball, who was attached to the cavalry as chief of artillery, rode along the entire crest from Little Round Top to Culp's Hill, to make himself familiar with the line. As he passed by headquarters he noticed some new troops, the Second Vermont Brigade under General Stannard, which formed part of my command. They were a fine-looking body of men, and were drawn up in close column by division, ready to go to any part of the field at a moment's notice. 
after inquiring to what corps they belonged, he passed over to the right. On his return late in the day he saw Sickles' whole line driven in, and found Wright's rebel brigade established on the crest barring his way back. He rode rapidly over to Meade's headquarters, and found the general walking up and down the room, apparently quite unconscious of the movements which might have been discerned by riding to the top of the hill, and which should have been reported to him by some one of his staff. Tidball said, "'General, I am very sorry to see that the enemy have pierced our centre." Meade expressed surprise at the information, and said, "'Why, where is Sedgwick?' Tidball replied, "'I do not know, but if you need troops, I saw a fine body of Vermonters a short distance from here, belonging to the First Corps, who are available.' Meade then directed him to take an order to Newton, and put the men in at once. The order was communicated to me, and I went with my division at double-quick to the point indicated. There we pursued Wright's force as it retired, and retook, at Hancock's instigation, four guns taken by Wright earlier in the action. When these were brought in I sent out two regiments, who followed the enemy up nearly to their lines, and retook two more guns. I have been thus particular in narrating this incident, as Stannard's Vermont Brigade contributed greatly to the victory of the next day, and it is worthy of record to state how they came to be located in that part of the field. It is claimed that unless Sickles had taken up this advanced position, Hood's division would have turned our left, have forced us from the shelter of the ridge, and probably have intervened between us and Washington. The movement, disastrous in some respects, was propitious as regards its general results, for the enemy had wasted all their strength and valor in gaining the Emmitsburg Road, which after all was of no particular benefit to them. They were still outside our main line. They pierced the latter, it is true, but the gallant men who at such heavy expense of life and limb stood triumphantly on that crest, were obliged to retire because the divisions who should have supported them remained inactive. I must be excused for thinking that the damaging resistance these supports encountered on the first day from the men of my command exerted a benumbing influence on the second day. It is said that Hood being wounded, Longstreet led the last advance against Little Roundtop in person, but when he saw Sedgwick's corps coming into line, he gave up the idea of capturing the heights as impracticable. This eminence should have been the first point held and fortified by us early in the day, as it was the key of the field but no special orders were given concerning it, and nothing but Warren's activity and foresight saved it from falling into the hands of the enemy. Meade was considerably startled by the fact that the enemy had pierced our center. He at once sent for Pleasanton and gave him orders to collect his cavalry with a view to cover the retreat of the army. Indeed, in an article on the Secret History of Gettysburg, published in the Southern Historical Papers, by Colonel Palfrey, of the Confederate Army, he states that the movement to the rear actually commenced, and that Ewell's pickets heard and reported that artillery was passing in that direction. After a short time the noise of the wheels ceased. He also says that in a conversation he had with Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren of our cavalry, who had lost a leg, and was a prisoner in Richmond, he was told that while the Battle of Gettysburg was going on, he, Dahlgren, 
captured a Confederate scout with a dispatch from Jefferson Davis to General Lee, in which the former wrote of the exposed condition of Richmond owing to the presence of a large Union force at City Point. Dahlgren said a retreat had been ordered, but when Meade read this dispatch, he looked upon it as a sign indicating the weakness of the enemy, and perhaps thinking it would not do to supplement the probable capture of Richmond by a retreat of the Army of the Potomac, countermanded the order. Sedgwick, who was high in the confidence of General Meade, told one of his division commanders that the army would probably fall back on Westminster. General Pleasanton testifies that he was engaged, by order of General Meade, until 11 p.m. in occupying prominent points with his cavalry, to cover the retreat of the army. Nevertheless, it has been indignantly denied that such a movement was contemplated. Although it was General Lee's intention that both flanks of the Union army should be assailed at the same time, while the immediate forces made demonstrations against the center, Ewell did not move to attack the right of our line at Culp's Hill until Longstreet's assault on the left had failed. Longstreet attributes it to the fact that Ewell had broken his line of battle by detaching two brigades up the York Road. There is always some reason why columns never converge in time. Johnson's division, which was on the extreme left of the rebel army, and had not been engaged, made their way, sheltered by the ravine of Rock Creek, to assail the right at Culp's Hill, held by Wadsworth's division of the First Corps, and that part of the line still farther to the right where Geary's division of the Twelfth Corps was posted. In his desire to reinforce the Fifth Corps at the close of the conflict with Longstreet, General Meade made the sad mistake of ordering the Twelfth Corps to abandon its position on the right and report to General Sykes for duty on the left. General Slocum, sensible that this would be a suicidal movement, reported that the enemy were advancing on his front, and begged permission to keep Geary's division there to defend the position. General Meade finally allowed him to retain Green's brigade and no more, and thus it happened that Ewell's troops, finding the works on the extreme right of our line defenseless, had nothing to do but walk in and occupy them. If Meade was determined to detach this large force, there seems no good reason why two of Sedgwick's brigades should not have been sent to take its place, but nothing was done. Johnson's division, as it came on, deployed and crossed Rock Creek about half an hour before sunset. It suffered so severely from our artillery that one brigade, that of Jones, fell back in disorder, its commander being wounded. The other, however, advanced against Wadsworth, and Green on his right, but as these generals had their fronts well fortified, the attack was easily repulsed. Nevertheless, the left of Johnson's line, not being opposed, took possession of Geary's works about 9 p.m., and thus endangered our communications. Gregg's division of cavalry, which was posted east of Slocum's position, saw this movement of Johnson. Gregg opened fire on the column with his artillery, and sent out his men, dismounted, to skirmish on the flank of the enemy. Johnson detached Walker's brigade to meet him, and the contest continued until after dark. Green, in the meantime, swung his right around on the edge of a ravine, perpendicular to the main line, and fortified it, to avoid being flanked. He was an accomplished soldier and engineer, 
having graduated second in his class at West Point, and knew exactly what ought to be done and how to do it. He held on strongly, and as it was dark, and the enemy did not know exactly where they were, or where our troops were posted, they waited until daylight before taking any further action. Yet they were now but a short distance from General Meade's headquarters, and within easy reach of our reserve artillery. A night attack on the rear of our army, in conjunction with an advance from the opposite side on Hancock's front, would have thrown us into great confusion, and must have succeeded. During the night Ewell sent Smith's brigade to reinforce Johnson. Geary, after all, did not reach Little Round Top or report to Sykes, and if he had done so, his troops would have been of no use, as the battle was over in that part of the field. There was a mystery about his movements which needs to be cleared up. To supplement this attack on the extreme right, and prevent reinforcements from being sent there, Early's division was directed to carry Cemetery Hill by storm. Before it advanced, a vigorous artillery fire was opened from four rebel batteries on Benner's Hill, to prepare the way for the assault. But our batteries on Cemetery Hill, which were partially sheltered by earthworks, replied and soon silenced those of the enemy. Then Early's infantry moved forth, Hayes' brigade on the right, Hoke's brigade on the left, under Colonel Avery, and Gordon's brigade in reserve. It was supposed Johnson's division would protect Early's left flank, while Rhodes and Pender's divisions would come forward in time to prevent any attack against his right. The enemy first struck Van Gilsa's brigade, which was posted behind a stone fence at the foot of the hill. Still farther to its left, at the base of the hill, was Ames' brigade, both enclosing Ricketts and Weidrick's and Stevens' batteries, which had been a good deal cut up on the first day, were now brought to bear on the approaching enemy. Colonel Wainwright, chief of artillery of the First Corps, gave them orders not to attempt to retreat if attacked, but to fight the guns to the last. The enemy advanced up the ravine which was specially commanded by Stevens' battery. Weidrick, Ricketts, and Stevens played upon their approaching line energetically. The rebel left and centre fell back, but the right managed to obtain shelter from houses and undulating ground, and came on impetuously, charging over Van Gilsa's brigade, and driving it up the hill, through the batteries. In doing so, Hayes says the darkness and smoke saved his men from a terrible slaughter. Weidrick's battery was captured, and two of Ricketts' guns were spiked. The enemy, in making this movement, exposed their left flank to Stevens' battery, which poured a terrible fire of double canister into their ranks. The 33rd Massachusetts also opened a most effective oblique fire. The batteries were penetrated but would not surrender. Dearer than life itself to the cannoneer is the gun he serves, and these brave men fought hand to hand with handspikes, rammers, staves, and even stones. They shouted, Death on the soil of our native state rather than lose our guns! Hancock, all this time, should have been kept busy on his own front, repelling an attack from Rhodes and Pender, but as they did not come forward, and as he felt that there was great danger that Howard would lose Cemetery Hill and his own right be turned, he sent Carroll's brigade to the rescue. Carroll was joined by the 106th Pennsylvania and some reinforcements from Schurz's division. For a few minutes, Hayes says, 
There was an ominous silence, and then the tramp of our infantry was heard. They came over the hill and went in with a cheer. The enemy, finding they were about to be overwhelmed, retreated, as no one came to their assistance. When they fell back, our guns opened a very destructive fire. It is said that out of 1,750 men of the organization known as the Louisiana Tigers, only 150 returned. Hayes attributes his defeat to the fact that Gordon was not up in time to support him. The failure to carry the hill isolated Johnson's division on our extreme right. As it could only be reached by a long circuit, it was not easy for Lee to maintain it there, without unduly weakening other parts of his line. That Rhodes's division did not reach Cemetery Hill in time to cooperate with Early's attack was not owing to any lack of zeal or activity on the part of that energetic officer. He was obliged to move out of Gettysburg by the flank, then change front and advance double the distance Early had to traverse, and by the time he had done so, Early had made the attack and had been repulsed. The day closed with the rebels defeated on our left, but victorious on our right. Fortunately for us, this incited Lee to continue his efforts. He could not bear to retreat after his heavy losses, and acknowledged that he was beaten. He resolved to reinforce Johnson's division, now in rear of our right, and fling Pickett's troops, the elite of his army, who had not been engaged, against our centre. He hoped a simultaneous attack made by Pickett in front and Johnson in rear would yet win those heights and scatter the Union army to the winds. Kilpatrick, who had been resting the tired men and horses of his cavalry division, at Abbotsford after the conflict at Hanover, went on the afternoon of the second to circle around and attack the left and rear of the enemy by way of Hunterstown. This plan was foiled, however, by the sudden arrival of Stuart's cavalry from its long march. They reached that part of the field about 4 p.m. After a fierce combat, in which Farnsworth's and Custer's brigade and Estes' squadron were principally engaged against Hampton's brigade supported by the main body, darkness put an end to the fight. Kilpatrick then turned back and bivouacked at two taverns for the night. Gregg's division of cavalry left Hanover at noon and took post opposite and about three miles east of Slocum's Corps on the right. There, as stated, he saw Johnson's division moving to the attack, and after throwing some shells into their ranks, deployed his own skirmish line and advanced against the one they threw out to meet him. At 10 p.m. he withdrew and took post on the Baltimore Pike, where it crosses Cress Run, near Rock Creek. By so doing he guarded the right and rear of the army from any demonstration by Stuart's cavalry. At night a council of war was held, in which it was unanimously voted to stay and fight it out. Meade was displeased with the result, and although he acquiesced in the decision, he said angrily, "'Have it your own way, gentlemen, but Gettysburg is no place to fight a battle in.' The fact that a portion of the enemy actually prolonged our line on the right, and that our centre had been pierced during the day, made him feel far from confident. He thought it better to retreat with what he had, than run the risk of losing all. Note. Since the above was written, the discussion has been renewed in the public prints as to whether General Meade did or did not intend to leave the field. 
so far as the drawing up of an order of retreat is concerned, it is undoubtedly right and proper to do so, for it is the duty of a general to be prepared for every emergency. It is easy to criticize, and say what should have been done, after a battle has been fought, after the position of troops is all laid down on the maps, and the plans of every commander examined in official reports. But amid the doubt and confusion of actual combat, where there has been a great loss of men and material, it is not always so easy to decide. On the night of the second, the state of affairs was disheartening. In the combats of the preceding days, the first, third, and eleventh corps had been almost annihilated. The fifth corps and a great part of the second were shattered, and only the sixth corps and twelfth corps were comparatively fresh. It was possible, therefore, that the enemy might gain some great success the next day, which would stimulate them to extra exertions, and diminish the spirit of our men in the same proportion. In such a case, it was not improbable that the army might be destroyed as an organization, and there is a vast difference between a destroyed army and a defeated army. By retiring while it was yet in his power to do so, General Meade felt that he would assure the safety of our principal cities, for the enemy were too exhausted to pursue, and being out of ammunition, and far from their base of supplies, were not in a condition to do much further damage, or act very energetically. Whereas, our troops could soon be largely reinforced from the draft which had just been established, and being in the centre of their resources, could be supplied with all that was necessary for renewed effort. There is no question in my mind that at the council referred to, General Meade did desire to retreat, and expressed fears that his communications with Taneytown might be endangered by remaining at Gettysburg. It has also been stated that both General Gibbon and General Newton objected to our position at Gettysburg, but this is an error. They merely recommended some additional precautions to prevent the enemy from turning our left at Round Top and thus intervening between us and Washington. Hancock, in giving his vote, said the Army of the Potomac had retreated too often, and he was in favor of remaining now to fight it out. End of chapter.